question I hope to answer this morning is, what is the source of the Christian's strength? What is the source of the Christian's strength for endurance? Another way I want to ask the question is, how can we live a life of power and not defeat, of victory and not being crushed by the weight of suffering and circumstances that occur in our life. In our study through the book of Hebrews over the last few months, we've taken the last recent weeks to focus in on one chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Chapter 11 can be found on page 1007 in the Black Bibles around you. I'd encourage you to open them with me. We'll be looking through this chapter again what will, Lord willing, be for the final time as we move on to chapter 12 next week. Throughout this study of chapter 11, we've asked the question, what is faith? What is it? How do we define it? And We said that faith is living as if God and our future reward was real. So it's not merely a theoretical idea. Faith is not some sort of ethereal or thought or intellectual thing merely. Faith is actually defined here as how you live. It's the substance. It's the reality of how you live if you know certain things are true. And based on those things being true, you live that way. We've also looked at this idea of commendation as it runs a theme through the whole chapter. What is commendation and how do we get it? And it's this idea of being approved and accepted and loved. And we see that only through Christ's death in our place can we be commended by our faith. Faith is the way that we're commended and God is pleased with us. And that all of us are looking for people to be pleased and happy with us and accept us and love us. We're all looking for it all over the place. And ultimately it's a reflection of the emptiness in our heart and the lack of God's pleasure towards us. We have a a divide, and, and there's hostility between God and humanity, and that cosmic big divide makes all of these smaller needs for approval and acceptance and justification echo all through our lives. Last week, we considered in the recent tragedies in Paris, what is our foundation and our security? And we saw in chapter 11 that this earth has no lasting foundation. Therefore, it has no lasting security. Our hope is in the city whose builder and maker is God, and that city will last forever. That's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Finally, we will ask the question in chapter 11, what is the source of Christian power? What is the source of Christian power? By way of metaphor, I want us to think about chapter 11 like a group photo. It's been often called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame of Old Testament heroes and heroines. Some of the greatest people and stories of all the Old Testament. So here's our spiritual heroes for the Jewish faith, now our Christian Jewish faith. So we look back at the Old Testament and we say, who are some of the best of the best? 
If you were to put them all together and take a, a snapshot and then frame them in a photo, this would be what we have in chapter 11 before us, is a group photo of the hall of faith. So in our first point of this morning's message, when we're trying to work our way to answer this question, where does that Christian power come from? We're going we're to find it by looking at this photo, this, this group, this collective group of people. You know, every, every photo, we're told, it speaks thousands of words. It has descriptions and stories in every photo. And you look back through photo albums. It's not just faces and people. There's stories and life and situations that have meaning. And so it is with this photo of these Hall of Faith. So first point we want to look at is what is the purpose of the author of Hebrews in the flow of all of this book, why does he bring up this photo? Is it like as if he's sitting down and he's counseling us? He's, he's a pastor. We, we understand this to be like a sermon, like a pastor would give. He's trying to encourage a, a group of people who are weak and they need power. They need strength. They need endurance. And so he's, let's imagine they're in his office. And he turns behind him and he pulls out this photo. In the frame of the photo before you actually look at the actual people in it, will kind of help you see the purpose for why he brings it. So the frame of this chapter, chapter 11, look at verse 32 of chapter 10. This is the first side of the frame of this photo. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So context here. This is what we're, what's surrounding this chapter 11 is first a recognition that these people that he's talking to has endured a hard struggle with suffering. It says in verse 36 of chapter 10, he says, you need endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. And then in verse 39, he tells them, look, we are not of the sort of people who shrink back from a faith and are destroyed, but rather we are those who have faith. And that's that final introductory statement before he then shows the photo or, or gets into the details of who these people are that he's going to explain and point them out. But that's only one half of the frame. The other half of the frame is in chapter 12. So turn over to chapter 12. What is the purpose and the, the need for the pastor to come and, and show them all of these people? Well, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, that there's a race to be run. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Why? Lay aside these things so we can run. For run with endurance the race that is set before us. You notice on either side of this photo, this frame here, has endurance, the need for running and enduring a race. Look at verse 3. Consider him, him being Jesus, as you see in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so in verse 3, he says, so consider Jesus. Think much on Jesus and the endurance that he had. Look how he endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider Jesus, why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's the struggle that they have. The need for showing this photograph of these Hall of Fame people is because they're faint-hearted. They're struggling. 
And in verse 4, he says more specifically that their struggles are not just physical suffering, but also their struggles with sin. In your struggles against sin, chapter 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, unlike Jesus who did. And then finally drop down to verse 12 of chapter 12. Therefore, so this is kind of concluding this section from 10, 11, 12. You can see him summing things up here in chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What a picture there. You can imagine they're shaking in their knees. Their knees aren't strong. Their legs, their foundation is not sturdy. Their arms are are drooping down. They're discouraged. They're defeated. So the purpose for bringing up this photograph of these heroes of the faith is because this is the place these people find themselves in, and he knows that by giving them the description of all of these people, they'll be encouraged, strengthened. So I want us to think this morning, do you have needs this morning to be encouraged? Any of you struggling physically with suffering? Because it's clear from the context that I've just read you, there was physical sufferings and persecutions, pain, struggles. If that's you this morning, then give ear to this photograph. Put your eyes and ears attentive to what's going to be given to you this morning. Also, in chapter 12, verse 4, we heard that they have struggles with sin. Well, we're all Christian people. We're perfect. We don't have any sins. What a terrible lie. This room is a room full of people who are sinners. So if you're here this morning and you're a visitor or you're not used to Christian church or you're thinking, oh, is this the gathering of all of the morally elite looking down on everybody else? We've got our act together and you don't. You need, you need to come and get what we've got. What we have is a desperate need for forgiveness because we're such terrible sinners. The only thing that sets us apart is that we realize that we need this. You see, I think there's really two kinds of people in the world. There's sinners who are unaware of their need for forgiveness and salvation. And there's those who are aware and they hate their sin and they cling to Jesus for salvation. But all of us are sinners. And if you're a member of this church, then that's in fact why you've joined. So whether it's physical suffering or struggles with our sin, I think all of us want to look at these people in the photograph of chapter 11 and these heroes and be strengthened and encouraged. We have need for that this morning, and I hope you've acknowledged that as well. So let's look at point number two. We've understood now that the photograph's frame, the context around it, the purpose for it is encouragement and strengthening. So second, let's look at the people in it. The people in the photograph. Again, these aren't just faces, they're stories. They're a list of stories from beginning of creation all the way through until he gets to the end of his tether, and he's like, I can just keep going on and on and on, but I don't have time, nor space, nor ink, or whatever. Not enough papyrus. So, I want us to think about what these people dealt with when we look at these people. What sort of situations did they deal with in their stories? 
You know, first, if we look at chapter 11, verse 4, we we look at Abel, and we've considered how Abel was commended for his acceptable sacrifice. But let's just think for a moment about the way this man had to deal with anger, sibling rivalry, jealousy, and eventually murder. Those are the kind of people he's pointing out. Hey, let's take a first look in the photograph of Abel. Here's a man who did nothing wrong, but he's surrounded by anger and jealousy in his own home, and he's killed brutally by his own brother. You think you have family conflict this week at Thanksgiving? I hope none of you are in the news because of a murder that happens in your home. I mean, we're talking to the extreme here. Here's relational family conflict at its worst. How about next, Noah? Verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet seen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark, saving his household, and by this he condemned the world. Friends, when we go back to the story of Noah, we realize that here you have the story of all stories where you have one righteous man and his family, and everyone else has turned against God and has rebelled against him. Do you ever feel like you're a minority? You ever feel like the world is increasingly growing hostile toward God? Well, you have not known Noah's day. Everybody on the whole face of the earth, except one family. You've never been a minority like that. Look at Abel. Look at Noah. Consider the circumstances of their story and realize what difficulty they had to struggle and go through. Then we go next to Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. Why did he do this? Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He left his home. He left what was familiar And he took a step, a a leap, if you would say, out into the unknown. I don't know if you've ever made decisions. You're like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know what the future will bring. I could take this job or I could not. I could pursue this marriage or not. There's these big decisions we make throughout our life and we don't know, is this going to work out for my good or, or, or not? Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Everything that was familiar and comfortable, everything that was going fine, it seems, and he hears the call of God and he leaves, and he has no idea where he's going. Have you ever felt that way? Ever find those times to be difficult to trust God? Let's look at his wife, Sarah. Next, we run through the list of people and see their faces. We see Sarah's face. I hope all the women connect with this heroine, this amazing woman by faith. In verse 11, it says, she received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Could you just imagine the feelings of a woman who has longed to have any children 
for years and years and years and being told by God that she would and they haven't come yet. Feeling like I'm wanting something that's good that I know that God wants. In fact, that God's promised and it's not here yet. And any of the women, whether in this room or in the lives that we know in our families, I mean, a barren womb is pain in and of itself. But add on top of that, God promised you would have a kid. Friends, are, are you seeing how all the normal everyday situations that we go through, when we look at these stories, these people have experienced these pains and sufferings to the 10th degree, far beyond what we've ever experienced. Wanting to have a family, wanting to have a son, carry on the name. How about when we read next that they finally do get the son? And then Abraham is called by God to sacrifice him? Now, I think it's clear not only from what we heard just a few moments ago from Jenny's reading of James chapter 2 and even the details of chapter 11, God's not literally asking for him to kill his son. That would be wicked and evil and immoral. God's not immoral. His faith was completed, the text says in James chapter 2, because it was a test, and that's what it says here in chapter 11. That Abraham, when he was tested by God, God was not asking him to really kill his son. He was testing him. And so when he passed the test and got to the point where he held the knife right over his son, the test was done. And God spared Isaac. Friends, have you ever felt like God has given you everything that you've ever been wanting and then all of a sudden he took it all away? What's the one thing Abraham and Sarah have been longing and wanting their entire lives? A child, a son. And how long did they have to wait? And then finally they get it. And then, then in that moment, God seems in that very next breath, takes it all away. Sacrifice your son. Have you felt that before? Your one and your only son, the son whom you loved, the text says. Have any of us have to deal with corrupt or unjust governments that kill babies because Moses and his family did? We see in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. King Pharaoh was asking for the boys of the Israelite families to be murdered and killed. So here you have awful injustice from corrupt government leaders killing children who don't deserve to die. And in the face of such awful circumstances, we see amazing faith. I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of these things sound sad or painful or difficult, but watch the next point of the story. We see Moses is now older and grown, and his trial that he has to deal with is, is not pain, it's wealth. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Any middle class, upper class, Americans dealt with the allurement of treasure and money and wealth. Friends, we, 
we probably don't even realize that we have this struggle with sin in us. We're so surrounded by wealth and treasures. And what an amazing example where a man chose to suffer instead of have luxury. He willingly, he made a decision. He could have very easily stayed in the king's palace and been the son of the pharaoh's daughter. He had royalty written all over him, and he chose to identify himself with the Israelites because that's who he was. What faith? What power? How do people live this way? On and on we could go, right? Throughout this whole photograph of all of these different stories and people, we see the people of Israel that are at the brink of being destroyed by the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, being delivered. Death imminent, being chased down and hunted. Look with me at verse 32 and following. If you've been reading chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and you read it all the way through like we did a few weeks ago, you get to his crescendoing point here at verse 32. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to speak of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Think about all these different people. Verse 33, through their faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouth of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, they became mighty in war, they put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Wow, that's a life of power, a source of strength to endure these sort of things, to live a life where you make decisions and you put yourself on a path where more of these things might come. How do you do that? Friends, I don't know if you can relate one-on-one parallel with all of these circumstances, but I'm hoping to some degree you can see, when we see the faces and the stories of these people, This photograph of the hall of faith, we can see. We often are in these situations. So we need to ask the third and final question. The purpose, the people, finally the power. What's the power? The power and the source of strength that all these people possess. What unites this whole photograph together? Why is it a group photo? And not individual isolated stories with different sources of strength. No, it's a collective unified theme, and it's something that you can't see. Because it's God. It's kind of anticlimactic. We're in a church. Of course it's God. The power of God. Friends, I ask you, before we dive in to further looking at this text, simply, do you believe in the power of God? Do you trust in his power over all things, over physical sufferings, The power over your sin and those struggles. The relational conflicts in your marriage and in your families. The power over the unbelieving world. 
one quick diagnostic question you could ask yourself is, what have I been praying for in these circumstances when I face them? And when I look back at my prayers, does it reflect a person who firmly believes that God is powerful over those circumstances? Ask yourself that question this morning. When you're facing physical suffering, do you believe in a God who has power over all of the material universe? The great physician, the great healer, the one who provides abundantly. Do you believe in your struggles over your sin? Or have you listened to the defeating lie, oh, this is who you are and will always be? You'll never overcome this sin. It has a grip on you. Jesus' power. I just love that phrase in the song written by Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Do you believe in that power? All of your sin is already canceled to begin with, so every sin you commit today is canceled sin. And he breaks that power presently in your life today as you look at the canceled sin on the cross. When you look at the lost and unbelieving world around you, is your prayers for saving from it and protection for yourself or salvation to it? Look at your prayers. Are you praying for just justice? Get ISIS, God. We hate Muslims. Oh, friend, how about the prayer of Jesus? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Save them. The power of the gospel. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to save people, even today, living in a hostile, unbelieving, violent world? Is there still a power rooted in the words and the message of Jesus that saves and transforms hearts and lives? But let's be more specific. Let's look at this text and the story through it one more time. What specifically is this power? We're talking very broadly and generally, and I'm asking you, do you believe in it? There's something more specific that unites all of these stories together. And it really wasn't until this week that I noticed it. So look with me first at Abel. If we start with Abel, we know that he didn't do anything wrong and he died for what he believed in. He had a better sacrifice. He was believing and trusting in God by faith. And because of that, his brother was angry and jealous. He murdered him and he died. Now, friends, this is, I think, the first of what several stories you see life and death, and you see suffering and injustice. You see all these different themes where you know in chapter 10, they have felt that way. They have gone through those things. They have endured a hard suffering, even though they were just doing what they thought was right and good by believing and trusting in Christ. So here, Abel is the first of what would be many people who would die Doing what? Nothing wrong. Then you get to Enoch, and you look at the story of Enoch, and you see that right after the story of a man who dies and is murdered is a man who never died. The power over death. And in fact, Abel's faith is still speaking. There's this ongoing voice of Abel's life that's beyond his grave. So you put Abel and Enoch together, the man that died first in all of recorded biblical history, 
And Enoch, the man who never died, first ever recorded in biblical history, just taken away. Here we start to see a theme of life and death and life after death and the victory over death in general. For example, in the story of Noah, all of the earth is being destroyed and killed to death through the flood, but he is saved and delivered from death and becoming an heir of righteousness. In the story of Sarah, we see that her womb is dead. Her womb has no life in it. And God is able to resurrect from a dead, barren womb, from a woman who's past the age of bearing children, he brings life out of the womb. Do you see the contrast from death to life in Sarah's womb? Or in Abraham, when he was tested, what does this passage say in verse 17 through 19? He considered that God was able to do what? Raise him from the dead. So we see the theme of resurrection made very explicit here, if it wasn't already implicit in the story of Abel and Enoch put together, the story of Noah being saved and rescued out of the flood. The story of resurrection of the womb of Sarah, well here now for the first time you see resurrection made plain. And you'll continue to. Look at verse 21. And in the same way, this being Abraham, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I'm sorry, I'm reading in chapter 9. Why don't I turn a page? Correction. Let's get all on the same page, literally. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So here in the context of passing on this promise, we see the phrase death being referred to, that as Jacob is dying, the promise of life for his family is being passed on. In verse 22, the story of Joseph is at the end of his life, as he is about to die, and he believes in the promise of God, so he tells where his bones should be buried in the promised land of God. In verse 23, Moses escaped death because his parents had faith and didn't fear the edict of the king, Pharaoh. In verse 28, we can see that the Passover was the death of the firstborn, and all of Israel that had faith to trust in God saw that God would spare them from that death of the firstborn, and they would be saved and redeemed and rescued. And then in verse 30, we see Jericho. Do you remember the story of how Jericho and the falling of the walls came about? The first instance they had with these huge, big Canaanite men was 12 spies went to go see the land that God had promised. And they're like, we're not going there. These guys will kill us. We're going to die. And so, in fact, they all did die, but not by the Canaanites, but because of their lack of trust in the power of God to save them. From what seemed to be inevitable death, God had the power over even those circumstances. And so, what does God do? He makes it really plain that he has power. He says, here's the game plan. There's walls in the city, and we could go under the walls. We could go over the walls. We could try and shoot stuff over them. There's a bunch of different battle tactics, but God told us what we should do is get the musicians. And we're going to march around and we're going to play music and then we're going to shout. Could you imagine 
being in the army, a soldier, and listening to that battle game plan, all right, what are we going to do? We're going to go under? We're going to go over? We're going to throw stuff over? We're going to try and burn them? We're going to try and like wait it out for a long time and like deprive them from any food and things going into the, the city and, and the walls? No, we're going to use the musicians. And so they march around and they shout and they're victorious. What's the point of that story? God has power over what seems to be, in the minds of human people, inevitable death. He saves. All of these stories show God's power and victory over death and defeat and destruction. The Exodus salvation is the story of God defeating his enemies and drowning all of the Egyptians and saving his people. Rahab did not perish. And then in verse 32, he says, I could keep going on and on and on. And you see all the examples from 32, 33 and following. Sawn in two. Killed. Murdered. Suffered. So friends, do you believe in the present power of God's resurrection from the dead? That's the specific power and source for Christian strength. Do you have a firm grasp now that you are living in such a way that there is a resurrection from the dead and that death cannot defeat you? Do you realize that if you do believe in that, it makes you invincible? Because every other trial or circumstance that could come underneath of the greatest trial and circumstance of our life, death, if death has been defeated, then all other minor, smaller subsets of struggles and trials and sins, they pale in comparison. Death is the ultimate. Isn't that the worst thing that could happen? You could lose your job, that's bad, or you could die. That would be worse. Like, let's just think for a second. Your children could yell back at you, or they could get murdered. Ah, that, see, I mean, friends, this is obvious. This is not difficult intellectual idea. The question is, do you believe that it's real now? And your life, by the way you live and the choices you make, they will reflect these kind of people when you believe that God has power over death, that he resurrects things from the dead. So he resurrects now your heart from the slavery to sin and the deadness of your heart toward God and resurrects it now to give it new life. So therefore, your power over sin is connected to this idea of resurrection. Do you struggle with the idea of somebody that's just, they're just too far gone. They're lost. This unbelieving world, the ISIS terrorists, they're too far gone. Friends, no, we believe in a gospel of resurrection from the dead that every hard heart is just another way for God to show, even in the hardest of hearts, how powerful he is to save and redeem and resurrect. I hope you see how unbelievably powerful this makes you and us as a church. You can look at suffering and even death itself in the face and say, come on, suffering. I know it will hurt, and I know it will make me lower, but I know that even if it kills me, it will raise me higher because I will be united with Christ's resurrection. Come on, suffering. 
I know and believe in a God who not only has power over it, but in the middle of it is using it for my good. That's why crazy people like embassy church members just said downstairs, hey, what are you guys thankful for? Well, I'm thankful for trials. People don't say that unless they believe this. That trials and suffering, they are for your good. We consider it pure joy, my brothers, when we face trials of many kind because we know that these trials produce steadfastness and endurance. How can we face those trials unless we know that God has victory over all of them and the greatest one being death? The greatest illustration that is not in chapter 11 that I have heard of this idea being applied was from a man who was from the Wheaton area. In the 1980s, a, Roman man, uh, a Romanian man, Joseph's son, he was the pastor of the Second Baptist Church of Oradia, Romania. Before that, he was living here in Wheaton, Illinois, part of the Romanian Missionary Society. But he was a missionary. He was pastoring a church, Second Baptist Church in Romania. And during persecution of Christians in the 1980s, he was exiled by the Romanian government, taken hostage, and has some of the most fantastic interactions with interrogators I have ever heard in my life. He said this, Interrogators, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between me and my God. My God is teaching a lesson to me today through you. I actually don't know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons, but I know this, sirs, that you will only do to me what my God has allowed. You will not go one further inch than what he has determined because you are only the instrument of my powerful God. He said later in a testimony, Every day, I saw those six pompous interrogators as nothing more than a puppet in my father's hands. During an early interrogation, he told one officer who was threatening to kill him, Sir, I want to try and explain how I see this issue. And at this point, I want you to insert everything we've just talked about, about the power of resurrection in the face of suffering, and see how this man used it so well. Here's how he sees the issue. Your supreme weapon is killing, but my supreme weapon is dying. You want to know how this works? You know that my sermons have already been recorded on tape, and they've spread over all of the country, which is why they have thrown him in jail, trying to shut him up. But if you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with martyr's blood. Everybody will know that I have now died for this preaching, and everybody who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen to that again. What this man preached must be true because he really meant it. It was sealed with his blood and his life. So he turns to the interrogators and says, Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than they ever did before. I will actually rejoice in the supreme victory of you killing me. After he said this, the interrogator sent him home. No longer imprisoned. Interesting. That's a way to get out of prison when you're in jail for being a Christian. Tell them, hey, kill me. 
It will only make my message more powerful, and it will be a joy to my ears. After he was sent home, he was trying to keep a low profile, and how he was not wanting to be taken back into prison and all these variety of things to try and protect his life. But then another officer was interrogating a pastor that was also in custody, and when he was sent home, he was told that in one conversation, all of the interrogators were saying, we know that Mr. Joseph would love to be a martyr, but we're not so foolish to give him that wish. And when his friend told him that, he said it clicked. He said, for years, I remember how I was afraid of dying and how I was trying to stay away from the authorities and keep a low profile and how badly I wanted to live, but I was wasting my life away in inactivity. But now, I realize if I place my life on the altar and decide that I'm willing to die for the gospel, then I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I tried to save my own life with my own power, I would lose it. But if I was willing to lose my life, I would find it. So he says later, looking back on these days, I was right. That first day of interrogation, the Lord taught me so many lessons during those hours. Meanwhile, the secret police heard the gospel. They got to see the love of Christ as we shared that with them. Both, we believe, came out better as a result. And as Jesus taught us long ago, with him, the road down leads up. With him, the path of suffering leads to victory. The road to Calvary stops and ends in resurrection. Do you see? Whether it's the stories of old or the stories of new, Christians who face even the most difficult of suffering and trials and circumstances endure to the end. With what source? Resurrection power. Because you can look at death, you can look at suffering, and you can know that it is all consumed in the cross of Christ. Defeated. He defeated the grave we just sang. Friends, do you believe in that resurrection power? I'm not asking you to tell me, yes, I do, Pastor Phil. I'm asking you, look at your life. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's not about getting the right answer on a quiz or test from your elders at your church. Do you believe in the gospel? No, no. Does your life reflect someone who believes and lives like that is in fact true? This is the way lives look when you do. I encourage all of us to look to Jesus, see his resurrection power, and let it transform the way we live every day in whatever struggle of whether it's sin or physical suffering, whatever that might be. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for this amazing source of power that makes us as Christians indestructible, unstoppable. We want to thank you for Jesus Christ and the amazing example he has given the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross of suffering, who experienced all of these struggles and temptations and trials without sin and defeated and conquered on our behalf.
thank you for Jesus. Thank you for hope. Thank you for a promise of resurrection and for the future in breaking of that resurrection now that that power is available to us presently. Thank you, God, that we don't need to wait and think of this far-off hope, this one day when you will come. But in fact, now we can receive and live and act as if it's already here and true, because it is. Father, we want to give you thanks for your church and the ways that we can encourage each other towards these things. I pray you would help us do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.